Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation with Dr. Lisa Hajar about her book titled The War in Court, Inside the Long Fight Against Torture, published by the University of California Press in 2022. Um, This is a really interesting book that examines in detail over a number of years how hundreds of lawyers mobilized to challenge the illegal treatment of prisoners captured in the, quote, war on terror. Um, And in so doing, in contesting this illegal treatment, um, helped force the end to the U.S. government's nasty policies, really, um, specifically the torture policies that were such a part of especially the early years of the war on terror. Um, The book is many things. It's super legal and goes into amazing detail about the legal arguments and the particular laws and the intricacies between civilian and military courts. And I kept thinking as I was reading it that this really just should be a film. This, This would be such a good film. Um, it's incredibly high stakes. There's very interesting personalities and it very much kind of comes to life even with, and in some cases, even because of the legal intricacies. So Lisa, I'm so pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you, Miranda. Before we dive in though, to all of those exciting details in the book itself, could you maybe introduce yourself a bit and explain sort of what brought you to write this book in the first place? Sure. Well, I'm a sociologist with specializations in law and human rights, um, and I'm particularly interested in law and violence, you know, um, war and armed conflict. So so this interest really, um, I mean, it's sort of been a lifelong interest, but when I was a graduate student, um, I decided to do my doctoral dissertation on the Israeli military court system in the West Bank and Gaza. And this was right at the beginning of the 1990s. Um, And so in the process of uh, conducting that research, um, you know, I did two years of field work, ethnography on the ground, and then, you know, sort of more years following uh, up until it turned into my first book, Courting Conflict. One of the things that I learned um, was the significance of torture, specifically Israeli torture of Palestinians as a major uh, strategic cornerstone of Israel's larger control strategies over um, the occupied West Bank and Gaza. And so the significance of torture was such that um, at the time of my research, Israel had the highest per capita imprisonment rate in the world. And this was related to the fact that Palestinians at that time were sort of on the tail end of the first intifada or uprising. And so there was a massive surge in arrests, prosecutions, in the military courts, convictions and imprisonment. And sent and core to that was the torture of Palestinians for confessions that could be used by prosecutors um, to charge and convict people. So that was one of the things that really drew me into the significance of torture in the context of a military court system and um, a political conflict. But the other thing that really uh, sort of shaped my interests and really the rest of my career was the very unique appreciation for the very unique role that lawyers can play in the context of a political conflict, you know, because, you know, in countries like Israel where, you know, or the United States that, um, 
you know, fancy themselves as rule of law nations. Many of the um, policies that governments institute are framed as legal as a result of the work of government lawyers, and then consequently battles over those laws and their ramifications play out on the legal terrain. And so it, you know, um, my first uh, major project um, really focused on similar things to my book, The War in Court, which is the torture in the context of conflict and the role of lawyers. Hmm. And that's, in fact, one of the first questions I have, right, which is, why are lawyers specifically that type of profession, that type of person, um, so key for being kind of the effective node through which opposition to the torture policy could um, come through. Why is it, I mean, maybe in the popular imagination, we'd assume like, oh, well, activists on the front line, that's what's going to stop this. Um, (laughs) But why, in fact, is it lawyers? Well, I think to explain why lawyers were the ones to fight the torture policy, it's absolutely crucial to appreciate that it was other lawyers who put the torture policy into place. And really, this is, you know, sort of, I would say that the beginning of this story that I tell in the in the book is really like for the first question would be how and why did the U.S. government adopt a policy of torture, and the the explanation um, really comes back. We, we have to think back to you know the immediate aftermath of 9/11, when Vice President Dick Cheney really seized control of the national security portfolio. But even before 9/11, he had um, surrounded himself by a group of lawyers who shared a particular right-wing legal vision that Cheney shared, which was, you know, sort of a hostility to international law and an idea that the president's power should be unfettered by law. You know, it's a kind of, there's a, a kind of a legal theory called the unitary executive principle that is popular in right-wing legal circles. And Cheney was very much an advocate of that. Um, and so the lawyers that, Um, He surrounded himself with, including his legal counsel, David Addington, and then a handful of lawyers, one White House uh, Defense Department and the Justice Department, who shared that vision. They really started putting into place the kind of um, strategies for how to wage uh, the war on terror. And one of the very first moves was um, an order issued by President George W. Bush on November 13, 2001, uh, in which he he essentially decreed that anyone who was taken into U.S. custody would have no rights to challenge his detention or treatment in any court anywhere. And then those that the government you know, might choose uh, to prosecute would be tried in this new uh, invention, uh, military commissions created specifically for them. And these military commissions would not abide by the normal rule of law principles. There would be no due process, et cetera. So it was these legal moves, essentially the assertion by the president, I mean, and it wasn't Bush himself who actually made the assertion, he was the mouthpiece for um, Cheney and and his uh, legal counsel, David Addington, to basically assert a kind of um, a priori rightlessness 
for anyone who would be taken into U.S. custody. And the reason that this, um, you know, this kind of vision was being put into place was because Cheney and others had convinced themselves on the basis of no knowledge or expertise that the only way to gather intelligence about terrorist enemies and terrorist networks would be to um, interrogate people who were taken into custody in ways that violated the law. So the idea that lawyers are the best people to combat this comes from, well, if this was created by lawyers, you know, the same tools can be used to take it down. Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the, I mean, that ex, it explains a lot because, you know, when certain um, government policies are framed as legal, and if your listeners can like picture me doing, you know, scare quotes with my fingers, you know, legal uh quote unquote, it really requires, you know, to battle that those policies that the the contra legality or the illegality of those policies, it those battles have to be waged on the terrain of law. And the only people who really are positioned to do so are lawyers. But the other thing, and I think just, you know, and we can elaborate on this in our conversation, but many of the um, assertions that were advanced by the Bush administration about the rightlessness of people in U.S. custody or the inapplicability of, you know, the Convention Against Torture, et cetera, was really, uh, you know, very raised, very complicated issues. You know, it's things that were sort of, you know, not the kind of thing that regular lay people would even have the faintest idea how to think about. And frankly, many of the lawyers who ultimately get involved in the fight against torture over the years were starting from zero in learning about these things. But the issues are very sort of complicated um, and legal. In other words, for example, when do the Geneva Conventions apply? When is the U.S. president's um, power limited by international law, et cetera? These are, you know, sort of legal questions that require a certain level of expertise. And so, but it was what I found so fascinating with my research as I started, um, and I really begin, um, the research on this book begins even before the the story that I chart um, in the book, which is the fight against torture. And it was like really one thing I found eternally fascinating was how lawyers who had never thought about torture, had no experience with the laws of war, had no prior, um, you know, sort of thoughts about, you know, an executive uh, executive power as, as it was manifesting by the Bush administration. And so you see very smart people with zero pre-existing expertise on this area, turning themselves into experts as a result of the issues that were implicated in the decisions made by the Bush administration for how to treat uh, people taken into U.S. custody. So that raises kind of the obvious question of why would lawyers who are not already specialized in this particular area of law get involved in this fight? Right. Well, so then that's another. So really where I um, I start the story of the war in court, I mean, it's sort of like the, the origin story um, begins with a, just a handful of lawyers. And it, it comes back to, you know, when President Bush had announced on November 13th, 2001, his plans, you know, for the treatment of people taken into custody. And what he was really announcing was um, a complete departure from U.S. legal legal precedent. And so a lawyer, um, the late, great Michael Ratner, who was the president of the Center for Constitutional Rights, 
you know, heard this order, read about this order and was alarmed, you know. And so he starts contacting other people. Are you alarmed? You know, the president is basically like charting a course that, you know, departs from hundreds of years of U.S. legal tradition. But what really galvanized Ratner um, was what happened next. And what happened next was in um, in December, at the end of December 2001, uh, um, the naval, the U.S. naval base on the south side of Cuba, Guantanamo Bay, was selected as the site for long-term interrogation detention of people captured in the war on terror. And the first detainees arrived at Guantanamo on January 11, 2002. And why this is so significant is that Michael Ratner in the 1990s had been involved in fighting the George H.W. Bush administration and the Clinton administration over their use of Guantanamo as a place to detain um, Haitian refugees who were fleeing political violence in their country. So Ratner had a lot of experience with Guantanamo already, and particularly the utterly inhumane and disgusting conditions where um, Haitians had been held and where the first detainees were held. And the 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 further sort of issue for Ratner that really galvanized him was the fact that everybody who was being transferred to Guantanamo, and it was entirely and exclusively Muslim men and boys, they were held in secret detention. Like their identities weren't known. They had no access to lawyers, as Bush had sort of decreed would hap- what would happen in his um, November 13th military order. And so Ratner teamed up with two death penalty lawyers, Joseph Margulis and Clive Stafford Smith, in order to fight. To Basically, the first fight was to challenge President Bush's authority to secretly detain people at Guantanamo. And so that really is the origin story of the fight against torture. They had no idea how detainees were being treated because everything was secret and classified. But they filed the first case against um, the government. And I sort of described this case as the shot across the bow in what becomes, um, the uh, eventually develops into a war in court. And this case was, um, the name of the case was Rasul v. Bush. And essentially what it was, was a, um, a, essentially a habeas corpus case challenging the president's right to secretly detain people without any right to challenge their detention or have you know access to lawyers. Um, and so because so the, the identities of almost everybody who was at Guantanamo was classified, a few of the detainees' identities did become known because they were the citizens of allied countries. And so the Rasul in Rasul v. Bush was one, uh, was a British um a British citizen, you know, and he, uh, you know, there was, so the case itself was um, named for him and and the few other uh, detainees whose identities were known. And so if I can continue with this, you know, sort of what happens, unsurprisingly, you know, Bush, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, Ratner and his allies lose in the lower courts. And one of the reasons they lost was because U.S. courts are completely incapable of um, sort of, they were incapable of dealing with a secret reality um, or challenging the president's authority in the context of war. I mean, U.S. courts are, are in general, uh, 
not susceptible to overturning a president's power over issues of um, you know foreign policy or or war. So they, the pre, the Bush administration asked the court to dismiss the case. The lower court dismissed. Ratner and his allies appealed the case to the D.C. Circuit Court. Um, it was also uh, dismissed. And what those two courts did was essentially give judicial blessing to the idea that the president is not bound by law and that the United States has the prerogative to secretly detain people. So this was really an unprecedented phenomenon. So those, you know, the losing, you know, Michael Ratner is was one of these people who always said, you know, that, um, you know, or the, 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 one of the mottos of Center for Constitutional Rights is, um, you know, defeat without loss, you know, so in some ways they, they were kind of building up certain um, attention to what was going on as a result of the case, even as it was losing. So the people who were paying attention to these losses, you know, and starting to get a little disconcerted that U.S. judges were basically giving the president a blank check to secretly detain people without any right to challenge their detention were lawyers. Because this is like a very lawyerly, um, a very lawyerly phenomenon. But what really um, a real turning point, you know, this was, you know, in some sense, this case was, you know, litigated. Not a lot of attention going on. There was much else going on. But what really becomes a major turning point, and what I say, like where the war in court takes off, and where hundreds of lawyers begin to get involved, is a, se- a sequence of events that occurred in the spring of 2004. So just to remind listeners, many of whom were probably uh, young and uh, don't might not have been around or con- conscious of what was going on, the United States um, decided to expand the war on terror to Iraq. And Iraq was invaded in, in, 2000, in March of 2003. And um, that war <laughs> did not go well, to say the least. Um, but the in the spring of 2004, uh, photos that had been shot uh, by soldiers who were guarding Iraqi detainees in a notorious prison outside of Baghdad, Abu Ghraib prison. Um, there were there were photos that the soldiers had taken themselves of them abusing, horrifically abusing detainees who were naked, tied up in contorted positions, menaced by dogs, etc. Those photos were broadcast um, on April 28, 2004. And so it immediately um, inaugurated a global scandal because it was material evidence, contrary to all the statements government officials had said in the interim, like we don't torture, we treat detainees humanely, that in fact, the U.S. was torturing uh, people in custody. So the photos were shocking and galvanizing in a sense. But the shock, what was really significant was the shock of those photos and the, and the fact that it exposed uh, official lies about how detainees were being treated finally rouses Congress you know, out of its sleepy slumber to start asking, what is the Bush administration's prisoner policies? And so there were hearings throughout May of 2004, where military and civilian officials were called to Congress and grilled about what was going on. They wanted information. And as a result of that pressure, 
the Bush administration felt impelled to release some legal memos and policy documents. And so in early, and a few were actually leaked to the press. So in early June, some of these memos come out, which actually revealed not just that torture, you know, contrary to what officials were claiming, it was, you know, bad apples on the night shift at Abu Ghraib, but that in fact, a torture policy had been authorized from the top of the administration. Um, you know, that, 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 you know, T- techniques that are clearly constitute torture had been approved for use uh, by U.S. interrogators, etc. And the fact that these memos had been written by the, you know, the lawyers in the circle around Cheney, that they were giving legal justification to flagrantly illegal policies, that was what really angered lawyers. So while the photos, you can say a picture um, is worth a thousand words, but a legal memo is worth a lot more when it's, um, you know, lawyers. And so it was really lawyers getting absolute around the country, people, you know, not with any necessary, any expertise. And the third event in this trifecta was when that case, Rasul v. Bush, which had been appealed to the Supreme Court at the end of June 2004, the Supreme Court ruled against the Bush administration and basically said, you know what, detainees at Guantanamo do have a right to challenge their detention in court. And therefore, they have a right to be represented by lawyers, by habeas counsel. And so it was that confluence of three events that really, you know, first lawyers were angry about the torture scandal, really angry about, you know, the kind of legal rationales that came out in the torture memos. And then with the the Rasul v. Bush decision in the Supreme Court, there was suddenly a way for them to uh, express their anger and do something. And so lawyers by the dozens and then the hundreds started calling the Center for Constitutional Rights and volunteering to represent uh, Guantanamo detainees as their habeas counsel. And this was, I think, one of the fascinating aspects of the book, certainly one of the cinematic aspects of the book, um, was your description of what it was actually literally like to be one of these lawyers. You've you've rank, you've called someone, said, I want to be uh, a lawyer for this. They say, okay, great, you're going to represent this person, fly out to Guantanamo Bay. And the descriptions of what that was like as a working environment, as a literal just human environment. Um, can you maybe explain a bit to our listeners what it was actually like to be one of those lawyers? Well, yeah, I talked to you know many, many dozens of of them. Um, so you know, although the Bush administration lost the case. You know, the, the the administration was not chastised. They didn't like, you know, reverse their policy. And so they maintained the secrecy. Um, you know, they didn't reveal the names of, of who was at Guantanamo. And so one of the challenges for the kind of enterprise of this, you know, habeas lawyers who ultimately came to call themselves the Gitmo Bar was to just start trying to figure out by other means who's at Guantanamo, because you need to know who's there in order to file a petition to represent them and and do things. But, you know, the Bush administration 
you know, had never wanted lawyers to be able to access detainees or to be able to access Guantanamo. And because, um, you know, the administration lost the court, the, the administration still didn't back down. Rather, it imposed all kinds of restrictions on lawyers. For example, you know, in order to go and represent a detainee, lawyers had to sign a protective order, which basically promised on the penalty of criminal prosecution that they would never reveal anything that they learned at Guantanamo, whether from their um, clients or from anyone else. So in a sense, lawyers were, you know, started going, the first lawyer went to Guantanamo in August of 2004, and then others started going in the weeks and months afterwards. And so they were basically going in and having, they were the first people who were not interrogators or guards, who were meeting people who'd been in U.S. custody for years, who'd been tortured, abused, you know, really had the most dehumanizing uh, conditions. So they were learning a secret because they had this kind of access. But it was that very goal of keeping secret that which was going on at Guantanamo that made lawyers the, um, you know, sort of the unwilling keepers of, you know, secrets about uh, government crimes and malfeasance. And so just in terms of what it was like to go to Guantanamo, I mean, I think that lawyers had varying kinds of experiences. But, you know, to go and meet somebody for the first time, someone who has been, you know, held for years, you know, some many of them didn't speak English. So lawyers would have to bring translators, you know, to, to speak whatever language uh, the detainees spoke. But these are people who were you know, I mean, if you imagine, like, had they been held for years, no one had sort of seen them. They didn't even know, of course, they had, the prisoners had no information about what was happening until, you know, perhaps like lawyers start showing up on the scene and saying, hi, I'm your lawyer. Your your father signed the next friend authorization. And so even just like building trust with um, people, you know, coming in as as Americans, you know, when, the, when their guards and their torturers were also Americans, you know, was, you know, I think quite uh, challenging, but it was also just, you know, the sense that these are lawyers and many of them, I mean, we're talking, you know, some of them were corporate lawyers, Republicans, you know, really across the, the spectrum of the legal profession. And they were not used to being, you know, sort of the enemy of the state, but they were treated like, you know, dangerous or treasonous, you know, actors on the scene because of the fact that the administration absolutely resented their presence and the work that they were trying to do. And so a lot of lawyers uh, described to me just sort of the, 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 the dissonance between, you know, sort of their perspective and, you know, what, what most lawyers would say or the common theme among those lawyers doing this kind of work was they were there to defend the rule of law. They were there to defend the rule of law and to be harassed and harangued and menaced with protective orders for doing something that they were literally trained to do and that was in principle, you know, the basis of the entire, you know, U.S. legal tradition was very jarring. And so really a lot of experiences that lawyers described was really having struggles with their own identities, you know, over like, who am I in this context where, you know, I am fighting my government over issues that I never 
never thought would happen. It, you know, so it was a very um, profound uh, effects. And also just to say that Guantanamo is not the most inviting environment. And so, you know, lawyers who were down there, they're working, you know, sort of meeting their clients in um, rooms that were the same rooms that the detainees had been tortured in. They were, you know, the same rooms were multi-purposed for lawyer-client meetings. So one can imagine, you know, the kind of effects on somebody who's being brought back into a same the same room or a room identical to that where he'd been tortured, and now he's meeting someone he's never met before who's saying, "I'm your lawyer. You can trust me." So it was just it was a very, you know, I think it was a, a very difficult and challenging, but also, you know, sort of life-changing experience for so many lawyers who got involved. Mm. And what happened with these habeas cases um, that they were then able to take forward? How did this impact the um, war against the torture policy? Well, they started filing. Um, so one of the things just to say about how, you know, what the government's response was to the filing of habeas petitions, just to maybe dial it back and go a little deeper into the weeds right after, you know, days after the Supreme Court issued its Rasul v. Bush decision, essentially opening up Guantanamo to um to lawyers because the Supreme Court had said lawyers have a right or um, detainees, excuse me, have a right to, you know, have to challenge their detention. So what the Pentagon did was in order to subvert the ability of detainees to have those kind of hearings in federal courts, the Pentagon created something called combatant status review tribunals. Um, And these review tribunals were basically um, authorized to look at whatever government evidence, uh, you know, there was to justify continuing detention of these detainees. It could have been hearsay evidence or, you know, statements from whoever had captured or, uh, you know, had contact with the person in Afghanistan or elsewhere first, um, tortured statements by other people. And so in the span of six months, the combatant status review tribunals basically ran through the entire detainee population of Guantanamo, which was over 600. And almost all of them in these kind of kangaroo courts were found to be legitimately detained. So the reason I mentioned that is because it was the, um, the, the, the outcomes or the notes or the decisions of the combatant status review tribunals that the government would submit in response to habeas petitions. So then again, now you're getting, you know, the federal courts in D.C., you know, looking at, you know, on the one hand, briefs filed by lawyers saying, my client is an Afghan shepherd, he was sold for bounty by a hostile neighbor, or my, um, you know, client was an 18 year old who was in Pakistan, you know, studying, you know, something, whatever the reasons were against whatever kind of evidence, and I would, again, scare quotes on the evidence thing, the government would file. But the courts, you know, had to kind of sort through this. And, and for the most part, early on, there weren't, there were, there were instances when the courts would find in favor of the detainee saying this person really is not legitimately detained. But then it, we have to like pull back to the larger American political scene. The, the, the DC, um, the, uh, the D.C. court, the lowest court, was the one where the cases were first filed. But the D.C. Circuit Court was if, if um, for example, if 
either party, the government or the habeas lawyers, lost. They could uh, appeal to the D.C. Circuit Court. And the D.C. Circuit Court is notoriously right wing. And the the judges on that court were absolutely hostile to the idea that any detainees would get out of Guantanamo on the basis of court uh, findings. And so the DC um, circuit court basically issues um, guidance to the lower court and saying, accept whatever the government's evidence is as presumptively true. In other words, basically dictating that that there should be really no critical assessment of the, um, you know, the circumstances surrounding how people got into U.S. custody and, and to Guantanamo. And so you really see, in a sense, a kind of playing out of ideological divides. And again, this kind of phenomenon where you're getting the, the habeas councils, and there were probably about 600 lawyers at its peak that were habeas councils, and they called their enterprise the Guantanamo Bar Association or the Gitmo Bar. And as I said, they came from every you know, corner of the profession, political, ideological, and seeing lawyers, Republican lawyers, lawyers who'd had previous government, you know, work experience, um, seeing uh, the courts dealing in these kind of ways with the most shoddy evidence, uh, et cetera, like it just further, you know, agitated the lawyers. And so I think in some sense, frustration was one of the real engines driving uh, the Gitmo bar in its in its work. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense um, to think about all these factors coming together. Um, I wanted to ask about another really key case. Um, you've talked us through Rasul v. Bush. Um, what impact did Hamden v. Rumsfeld have on the torture policy? Okay, so so there was alongside, um, you know, the vast majority of detainees were never even slated for prosecution in these new military commissions that were invented by Bush in his November 13, 2001 order. Most of them were just held. I mean, that was the idea, was that the United States could just take suspected terrorists or militants out of out of the world and keep them sort of permanently under U.S. control. But there was, um, the military commissions were created in order to prosecute a few people. And so in 2004, 2003, the administration starts lining up a couple people that it wants to prosecute. And so what they what happened was, you know, these um, detainees would need defense lawyers. And so there was a call for military lawyers to volunteer or they were tapped to serve as defense lawyers for those few detainees who would be slated for prosecution in the military commissions. And and uh, one of the first lawyers who was slated, it was, we're talking about five people, like we're talking about five defense lawyers. One of them was um, Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift. And so he and his colleague, um, Lieutenant Commander Philip Sundell, they were like sort of working, you know, do, preparing for their job as defense lawyers even before they had clients. And so they started looking at the rules you know, governing the military commissions. And again, there are lawyers, you know, although I think the Bush administration assumed that soldiers would just, yes, sir, their orders. Once they started looking at what was going on, that there would be no um, lawyer, not even defense lawyers could have confidential conversations with their clients. Like the government had originally wanted to use the defense lawyers as an additional source of information about the people that they were sensibly representing, that there would be no access to the defendants would have no access to information 
information because it was classified that was used against them and so on. And so these lawyers, you know, it was, it was, I think, a real shocker for the Bush administration because they had drank their own Kool-Aid that soldiers are, you know, right wing. This is a right wing administration. Right wing soldiers are going to basically go along with the program. But it was, you know, what was surprising was that these lawyers basically put their ethics as lawyers and also their principles as soldiers assigned to defend the Constitution to work fighting the administration. So Charlie Swift, Lieutenant Commander Charlie Swift, his client was a Yemeni named Salim Hamdan. And Salim Hamdan was by no stretch of anyone's imagination some big terrorist. He had been um, a driver for Osama bin Laden, you know, the, the leader um, of Al-Qaeda, you know, in the, in the late 1990s. And he was captured very early on after the invasion of Afghanistan. But the Bush administration picked him because of the fact that under torture, he had apparently or allegedly agreed to plead guilty. And the Pentagon wanted a couple of quick plea bargained um, convictions in order to try and sell uh, the, you know, the legitimacy of the military commissions to the world. So when Charlie Swift met Salim Hamdan for the first time in um, January 2005, um, and he found out that his client did not, in fact, want to plead guilty, you know, what, what was he guilty of? And so Charlie Swift basically decided that he was going to fight, that the, that the military commissions were unlawful, they were unconstitutional, they violated military law the military laws that govern, you know, all four branches of the military. So Charlie Swift teamed up, I mean, uh, Neil Katyal, who's a Georgetown University law professor with an expertise in national security and constitutional law. um, Katyal had volunteered his services back in the summer of 2003 And so he and Swift had been working together and they decided to challenge the legality of the military commissions. So um, Swift filed a case basically suing Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. And so that's why the case was called Hamdan v. Rumsfeld. So that case was it was challenging the legality of the military commissions, but it was also challenging one of the core decisions of the Bush administration, which had been to decree the inapplicability of the Geneva Conventions. And the Geneva Conventions are, you know, the the, the laws of war. They have universal applicability. But the Bush administration, you know, Cheney and the lawyers around him had decided if the president doesn't like the Geneva Conventions, he could decide not to abide by them. So part of the case, Hamdan v. Rumsfeld, was really challenging the U.S. government's failure to abide by the Geneva Conventions, which are federal law because they're, you know, they're, they're incorporated into U.S. law. So like Rasul v. Bush, the Hamdan v. Rumsfeld case lost, well, actually it won in the lowest court, in the lowest court, in the first court in the D.C. Um, uh, in the D.C. court, the judge basically said, in fact, uh, Hamdan cannot be prosecuted in the military commissions because he has not yet been uh, determined to be an unlawful enemy combatant. And that was actually prior to the Rasul decision. But once the Rasul decision uh, comes out, um, the Hamdan v. Rumsfeld case uh, changes. And by the time that case got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court issued its Hamdan v. Rumsfeld ruling in June of 2006. And in my opinion, that was was the game changer. Because not only did the um, 
Supreme Court cancel the military commissions because they've been established by presidential fiat in this, you know, military order. And that in end of the president does not have the authority, constitutional authority to create a new legal system. But the more significant finding of the Supreme Court in Hamdan v. Rumsfeld was that, in fact, common Article three of the Geneva Conventions, which means it's common to the four 1949 Geneva Conventions, applies to all people in U.S. custody captured in the war. And common Article three um, prohibits and criminalizes torture, cruel treatment, and outrages on human dignity. And so that you know, what completely shattered the, you know, foundation of uh, the Bush administration's prisoner policies, including, you know, torture, kidnapping, uh, forced disappearance, and all of those things that were particularly characteristic of the CIA, which was running its own separate um, torture and kidnapping and forced disappearance program. And so as a result of the Hamdan v. Rumsfeld decision, which President Bush, you know, took to the, the, you know, podium of a White House press conference in September, you know, berating the Supreme Court for, you know, infringing upon his executive authority. But he couldn't, you know, necessarily uh, defy the court's finding that Common Article 3 applies. And so he announced for the first time at that press conference on September 6th, 2006, Bush acknowledged publicly the existence of this separate from the military CIA uh, program. They called it the Rendition Detention and Interrogation or RDI program. He announced that it existed, that it was great, that it had kept Americans safe, but that because of the Supreme Court's decision, they couldn't keep running these secret, the CIA couldn't keep running these secret prisons in other countries. And so 14 detainees who'd been, you know, disappeared and tortured for years in CIA custody were then um, transferred to Guantanamo in September of 2006, where I would say all but one of them uh, remains. But the other thing, and we again have to think about how politics, you know, and ideologies in the United States play out. At that time, in, in the fall of 2006, Republicans controlled uh, the Senate. And so the White House sent legislation to the Republican-controlled Senate, which they passed, which basically gave back to the administration a new the, the military commissions that the Supreme Court had wiped out. And so this legislation, which was called the Military Commissions Act, basically um, gave congressional um, uh, blessing to all of the illegalities, the use of hearsay evidence, coerced evidence, lack of due process, etc. But it was now the law. And that was really the law that governed how the military commissions would operate going forward. And after the passage of the Military Commissions Act, that's when the Bush administration takes another stab at trying to prosecute people um, in, the, in the commissions. And before we move on to the legacy of this um, after the Bush administration, um, do you want to just tell us kind of how that goes? You're talking about the military commission hearings? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, the, the military commissions have been, um, you know, just an unmitigated disaster. But, you know, the Bush administration imagined, like, now they had congressional backing to prosecute people who'd been tortured on the basis of tortured evidence with, you know, limited, if, you know, any due process rights, etc. And so they, the, 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 
the first people that you know, Salim Hamdan was then, you know, put back in line and he was actually prosecuted in the military commissions. And in his case, you know, the government, you know, I think the Hamdan case is, you know, I mean, it's one of the most fascinating ones, but he, um, the government basically, although he was a lowly driver for Osama bin Laden, in order to make the military commission case, the prosecutors tried to portray him as this, you know, Al-Qaeda mastermind. So in front of um, the military panel, which is the military word for a jury, you know, as the prosecution was building its case, they were showing, you know, uh, footage of the Al-Qaeda bombings of the U.S. embassies in Africa in 1998, the bombing of the USS Cole off the coast of Yemen in 2000, and then footage of, you know, the 9-11 attacks, the collapse of the World Trade Center, et cetera, in order to sort of portray Hamdan as responsible for all of this. Well, it didn't work. You know, he Hamdanev was charged with, you know, conspiracy and material support for terrorism. The conspiracy being that he was, you know, a player in all of Al Qaeda's um, acts of violence uh, in the, you know, prior to 9 11, and, and including 9 11. The, the, uh, the panel came back and they acquitted him of everything except material support for uh, terrorism. And they sentenced him to six years, but they gave him credit for time served, which meant that he would be um, qualified to be released five months after his conviction. And in fact, that's actually what happened. He was repatriated to Yemen five months after his conviction. But um, then by, by 2006, um, seven, you know, Rumsfeld was out, you know, he kind of, is, he was uh, released from duty in, in um, November of 2006. And so the new secretary of defense was Robert Gates. And he was so agitated that um, Hamdan had gotten credit for time served that he eliminated that possibility. And so the other two people, the only other two people who were prosecuted during um, the Bush years was one was a kangaroo skinner from Australia named David Hicks. And his um, conviction was on the basis of a plea bargain. And he, too, you know, got a, an easy deal uh, and then was released back to um, Australia. And then there was an Al-Qaeda propagandist named Ali al-Bahlul. And al-Bahlul categorically refused to participate in his conviction. And so he was actually given a life sentence. And so he, Ali al-Bahlul is still serving, um, is still in Guantanamo in prison. But, you know, for all of the hype, et cetera, you get, you get a kangaroo skinner, a propagandist, and a driver. That was that was the the full range of quote unquote you know achievements of the military commissions during um, Bush's years, but the but the jewel in the crown. I mean, the reason, the main reason that um, the White House had wanted Congress to reauthorize the military commissions was for some of these people who'd been in CIA custody for years and were then transferred to Guantanamo, including. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the alleged mastermind of the 9-11 attacks. And so um, in, you know, the, the Bush administration, like, put together a case involving six people that it was going to be a group trial for 9-11. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the primary, uh, would be the primary defendant. And so five of them, Mohammed and, and four others, had all been in CIA custody. But the sixth person that was lined up to be um, a defendant in the 9-11 case was a guy named Mohammed al-Qahtani. 
And he'd never been in CIA custody. He'd only been, you know, in custody um, at Guantanamo. And he was, um, the FBI had come to some, uh, you know, suspicion that maybe he was the so-called 20th, the missing 20th hijacker, um, you know, that he had been, you know, attempted to be, you know, so it's not clear whether or not he was the missing hijacker, but that's how he was being um, set up. But the problem, and and Al-Qahtani's case is also very interesting. It was, you know, Rumsfeld, you know, when Guantanamo was got, got going and after the Bush administration had authorized the CIA to use a whole menu of torture techniques, the White House had passed those techniques on to the Pentagon. And just to, to say that there's one difference, like the CIA is a civilian agency. They're not bound by the laws of war. The Pentagon is. But the Pentagon basically adapted the CIA torture techniques for Guantanamo and detainee zero was Mohammed al-Qahtani. Because as soon as Rumsfeld learned that somebody in, in military custody at Guantanamo was you know, kind of like a high-value uh, detainee that the CIA had, they unleashed the full panoply of torture techniques. Um, military interrogators did that to al-Qahtani. So fast forward to 2007, when al-Qahtani is charged uh, for the 9-11 case, the woman who was the convening authority for the military commission missions, a woman named Susan Crawford, who was a um an acolyte of Cheney. Um, but she looked things over and she basically said, Al-Qahtani cannot be prosecuted because we tortured him. And that really illustrates the difference between, you know, the kind of potential accountability for military torture versus the absolute unaccountability for CIA torture. So Al-Qahtani was sort of taken off the list and the 9-11 case was going to move forward. And so the Bush administration was fantasizing, you know, they were, these guys were arraigned in June of 2008. The fantasy was that they could be tried, prosecuted, convicted, you know, guilty verdicts, death sentences, if they could be executed by the time Bush left office in January of 2009. But what happened in that case was that by December of 2008, the five defendants basically um, contacted the commission and said that they had uh, an offer to make. And the offer that they wanted to make was that they would all agree to plead guilty on the condition that they go directly to execution. And so, shocker, nobody had anticipated the idea that people might use, you know, sort of martyrdom by military commission. And as pathetic as the laws governing the military commissions were, there was no envisioned scenario for a plea bargain to execution. And so the case fell apart, you know. And so Bush's, you know, entire, um, you know, reputation on Guantanamo was a complete and utter disaster and joke by the time he left office. And frankly, Bush was by the time he left office in 2009, he was one of the people who started saying, yeah, maybe Guantanamo should be closed. And in fact, that is very much something that Obama talked about coming into office in 2009, um, which didn't quite end up going the way that he talked about is in his campaign. So what do you think we can learn um, from the Obama administration when we think about its position on torture and the rule of law? when we look at not necessarily what he said before coming into office, but what actually happened. 
Right. Well, so what uh, Obama, Barack Obama really ran on a campaign, um, you know, sort of highlighting failings and breaches of the rule of law of the Bush administration. So he campaigned on the promise to close Guantanamo and, and to end the torture program and restore the rule of law. So all of the hundreds of lawyers, I mean, I'd say the vast majority of people, you know, the, the good lawyers, as I you know, say, the habeas, the Gitmo Bar and others involved, the military lawyers who were um, defending detainees, you know, favored Obama as the candidate. And there was a lot of hope, you know, when Obama was elected, you know, that, okay, we've we've survived the Bush administration. We've got a president now. He's going to clean house. We're going to, we're going to, you know, this, we're going to turn the page on this ignominious chapter of U.S. history. And indeed, Obama, you know, on his second day in office, he signed three executive orders, one of which essentially ended the torture program and took the CIA out of the interrogation business. A second order was basically a promise, you know, to close Guantanamo within a a year. And then the third was not what people were really hoping, which was that he would cancel the military commissions just, you know, by executive order in the same way that Bush had created them. But that he, but he said rather that the military commissions would be reviewed, like what was going on in the, like the status of all the detainees at Guantanamo would be reviewed and it would be decided what um, should happen to them. So people were still optimistic that that um, Obama was really going to be made good on his campaign promises. But what happens, and again, I constantly return to the issue of deeply polarized uh, ideological battles in America. Um, Dick Cheney comes immediately out of retirement, you know, when, uh, you know, to sort of combat the new president over his criticism of the Bush administration's policies, Obama's decision to end you know, uh, torture techniques, which of course are not, were not called torture techniques, even by Obama, they were called, they were euphemized as enhanced interrogation techniques, et cetera. So Cheney is out there railing on Fox News and other platforms that Obama is soft on terrorism and he's um, disposing of tactics that worked and kept Americans safe, et cetera, et cetera, you know, completely unmoored from any reality. Um, but the, you know, Obama's disposition is such that he doesn't like <laughs> Obama like wanted to fancy himself as the kind of national healer or you know bipartisan uh you know um you know approaches to all these things to kind of rebuild a national consensus that had been so deeply fractured but you know the the kind of um railing against Obama I mean there was obviously other ways in which Americans immediately started you know attacking Obama you know and we can't dismiss the fact that much of it was uh, motivated by racism you know but so Obama was like sort of under fire from the right, you know, and unfortunately, what I, one of the things I say in my book is that Obama's original sins, you know, which kind of like uh, pre um, foreordained his failures to really actually do anything of, you know, good was his decision to appoint um, a person named Rahm Emanuel as his chief of staff. And Rahm Emanuel, I mean, although he's a Democrat, he basically took the position that, you know, let's keep, you know, admitted White House policies off of Fox News. Let's not do anything that the right that's going to give fodder to the right. And so he was 
completely opposed to any, um, you know, sort of rule of law cleanup operations because it would have, you know, rallied the right. And he basically, Rahm Emanuel said, we can't do anything about Guantanamo that Republican Senator Lindsey Graham uh, isn't going to accept. And Lindsey Graham was a huge champion of the military commissions, deeply hostile to habeas rights for uh, detainees and, you know, advocated, you know, keeping Guantanamo open. So Obama, you know, by choosing Rahm Emanuel had tied his own hands. But the second, you know, original sin was that uh, Obama appointed John Brennan as the White House counterterrorism advisor. And John Brennan came over from the CIA and he had his, he was up to his elbows in the torture program. So Brennan's, you know, it was basically the CIA had an inside man in the White House and Brennan's interest was to make sure that information about the CIA torture program did not become public and that there would be no accountability. Um, and then the third original sin was that Obama, in his, you know, feign towards bipartisanship, decided to keep Republican Robert Gates as Secretary of Defense. And Gates was also adamantly opposed to closing Guantanamo. So, you know, Obama basically set himself up for failure. But the real I think the, the the major lesson, one that will go down through the ages, you know, is 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 a, is a bigger one about, you know, what happens when a president, in this case, the Bush and his administration, assert a broadly expanded interpretation of executive power, the rights of the president. You know, even though Obama was critical of that before he took office, you know, he wore the mantle of expanded executive power. And so while he did, in fact, you know, end the torture program, he didn't, you know, he he basically adapted that kind of, you know, expanded executive power to justify drone warfare, you know, to base, I mean, Bush had started, you know, the idea of targeted uh, killings um, during his administration. But when Obama became president, he you know, basically expanded um, tar- the targeted killing program, mainly by um, uh, armed drones, but also by kill squads, you know, um, the Joint Spe- uh, Special Operations Command units that might go around uh, murdering people. Um, and so he did that with the same kind of rationale that the Bush administration had used about executive power to justify kidnapping, forced disappearance and torture. And this is one of the really interesting strategic points that you um, analyze and argue that um, this shift between sort of capture to killing from Bush to Obama, that the torture policy and the contest, the pushback from the lawyers that you've been discussing um, is part of explaining that shift in U.S. strategy. Right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, this is really, I think, one of the big takeaways is that the torture program, uh, U.S. torture did not end because the American public was like, wow, that's terrible. Once they learned about it, it was only, you know, in fact, the American public, it was was a failure. You know, the American public failed to do anything of any meaningfulness. I mean, there are a few exceptions, Code Pink and the National Ecumenical um, Association Against Torture and others. But for the most part, the American public did nothing. But it was these court cases, Rasul, which opened up Guantanamo to lawyers, um, the Hamdan case, which basically, you know, 
re, re, um, clarified that the Geneva Conventions apply. And there was one more um, sort of the third and final significant case was also building on habeas, which was called Boumedien v. Bush, in which the Supreme Court in 2008 said that Guantanamo detainees do have, um, you know, constitutional rights to habeas corpus. So that was, those were three losses. And, and it basically, they all turned on challenges, legal challenges to the way the government was treating prisoners. And so, and, and coupled with the exposure of torture and, and other things. So these, these three cases really elevated the political cost of capture, and particularly for someone like Obama, who had, you know, uh, campaigned on that he doesn't want to engage in torture, it, you know. But then Cheney and and the right were, you know, condemning Obama and saying, "Let's bring back the waterboard. Let's, you know, these are, you know, necessary techniques, and our enemies don't have any rights anyway, and so on." And so, were capture to continue to be um, the strategic, you know. Uh, cornerstone of the war on terror that Obama operated, it would have been impossible for him to close uh, or even imagine closing Guantanamo because of the fact that, you know, he didn't want to fight the right. And the right was like, that's Guantanamo is where we put our enemies, you know, and let's torture them. And so it completely diminished the appeal uh, of capturing people. And so consequently, you get, you know, sort of the same logic, but a different tactic, like, let's just kill our enemies, let's just, you know, using uh, whatever, you know, intelligence the government claims to have to uh, drone bomb or execute people. Uh, and so that was really what happens, you know, so you get the same logic, different means, you know, so whether it's capturing and disappearing and torturing people, or killing people, the underlying logic was the same. That was the strategic cornerstone of uh, the war on terror in the Obama years. And it continued, you know, into the Trump years. And this is, in fact, um, this idea of continuing is something uh, I'd love to pick up because you talk about in the book the idea that there's not just kind of a continuation of the torture program and its impacts, um, but specifically a haunting um, so I was wondering if you tell us about how and why do you think the torture program haunts U.S. politics, both um, beyond the Obama administration and even all the way up to today? Okay. Well, I, there's just to sort of contextualize my response to that question, we have to think about what happened at Guantanamo during the Obama years. And so, you know, uh, to every, you know, person, you know, was hoping that he would be the rule of law restorer. He basically, more people were prosecuted in the military commissions during Obama than, than Bush by, you know, double, although it was still, you know, only a handful of people. And so, you know, one of the things that Obama did, I mean, what was really shocking, and that was the occasion for my first trip down to Guantanamo, um, and I've subsequently gone 14 times, I go as a journalist, was Obama's decision, the first person that he put on trial um, in, you know, 2000, charged and put on trial in two, uh, 2009, was somebody who had been 15 when he was captured in Afghanistan. His name is Omar Khadr. He was a Canadian citizen. He was 15 when he was captured in Afghanistan. He was 16 when he was transported to Guantanamo. And the, um, the allegation against him was that in a battle, 
he were in the battle in which Qatar was captured, he had thrown a grenade that killed the U.S. soldier. So first of all, it's not illegal to kill a soldier in battle, you know. So so to, to what Obama, the Obama administration did was so outside the pale of you know kind of universal consensus about what is right. Like you no, know, no government since World War II had prosecuted a child soldier for war crimes, you know, until Obama. And then you know, and also it's like the fact that. Uh, Cotter was basically charged with an invented war crime. Like it's an invented war crime to say that in a battle, killing a soldier is illegal. So the Obama administration essentially rewrote the laws of war in order to prosecute Omar uh, Cotter. And they gave it the kind of oxymoronic uh, name, domestic humanitarian law, you know, whatever was invented. But so Cotter was prosecuted and a few other people uh, were prosecuted. And the 9-11 case was sort of reverted back to, um, uh, you know, the military commissions, although that's something that is, goes to the haunting question. But so the Obama administration essentially, you know, put on the mantle that the Bush administration had wove and wore it better. You know, who wears it better? The Obama administration did, you know. But ultimately what happened was that of all the cases that were that actually reached conviction in the military commission, and we're talking about, you know, you could count them on two hands with fingers left over. But once those cases eventually got to appeal uh, in the federal courts, the invented war crimes were, for the most part, thrown out. The only conviction that held was the conviction against Ali al-Bahlul for a conspiracy. So that's one part of the haunting is that, you know, the the you know we have this legacy of a, like a complete legal failure you know that two administrations had uh, sought to you know had put their names on one democrat one republican and you know while the courts sort of dismissed certain inventions there is nothing in place to prevent a future administration from doing the same things, inventing war crimes, uh, reasserting the right to disappear people, et cetera, because, you know, you know, we're haunted by the fact that we've never cleaned our legal house and we can't clean our legal house because of politics. But the other, I think the most significant um, element of, you know, where I argue about haunting is that, you know, torture you know, we, the government ran a torture program and there is no after torture. The people who were tortured and, you know, lawyers who represent them would say that those 34 individuals who are still at Guantanamo, including 13 of the 14 um, who had been um, tortured in black, in CIA black sites are continually being tortured because of their lack of medical treatment and, and the harsh conditions of their confinement. And so the the, the 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 legacy of torture haunts us. We have never, no one has ever been held accountable. I mean, torture is a gross crime under international law. No American responsible for the torture program has ever been prosecuted um, for it. There's no knowledge or truth about what happened, what the torture program means. I mean, that's one, you know, sort of major point in my book is to really enable people to understand how torture happened, why it happened, and how we are not we are not over it yet because there's been no no justice. So there's been we are still living in a house 
haunted by uh, the legacy of torture. And it's, you know, it's like a ghost, you know, it's, it doesn't go away. It's, it's still there. And one can see that very clearly in the 9-11 case, which is one of the last few cases left in the military commissions, the effort to prosecute people who were brutally tortured, you know, and we can talk about that, but that case is, um, I mean, I think that warrants its own, you know, conversation, if you'd like to talk about that. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that case. How okay. it's going? Yeah. So, so you know, the Obama uh, to you know sort of take it, the, the Bush administration had failed to you know achieve its goal of getting guilty verdicts and executions by the time Bush left office, and so Obama's original plan was to actually prosecute, move these uh, five defendants to New York and prosecute them in federal trial because federal courts are fully capable of um, you know handling terrorism cases, but you know, right-wing hysteria explodes. The Obama administration does what it does. You know, Rahm Emanuel, uh, you know, basically sabotages the plan. And so then the 9-11 five um, were uh, rearranged uh, in 2011 and their case began in 2012. So there's five defendants, all five of them had spent years being brutally tortured by the CIA. They're all facing the death penalty. So the defense teams, and this is really where I've spent, you know, most of my time at Guantanamo has been in the latter years, you know, observing and reporting on the 9-11 case and, and you know, one other death penalty case, which is the case against one individual named uh, Abdul Rahim al-Nashiri, who's charged with the being the mastermind of the bombing of the USS Cole, also brutally tortured by the CIA. So what happened is you get these teams, each of the defendants has a team of lawyers. So there would be at least one um, death penalty lawyer, capital, what they call capital law expert, or in, in legal vernacular, a learned counsel. There'd be at least one, you know, military lawyer and other lawyers. So you have these teams of really sophisticated lawyers, both military lawyers and criminal uh, defense lawyers on the defense side. And then the prosecution, same prosecutors who'd been, you know, with the case since the Bush administration, you know, trying to deal with it. And so the case begins in 2012, and it was 2022 that the government threw up its hands. And I can explain that in a minute. But for, for a decade, that case was in pretrial hearings. And so one of the things, I mean, it's just, it was really, I mean, for me as a scholar of, of torture and the law, it was fascinating to watch year after year. Because essentially for... Um, you know, for about eight years of the of the decade, the defense lawyers were fighting the prosecution for information about what happened to their clients in CIA custody. And the argument, sort of a rule of law argument, is that pretrial detention is relevant, you know, in any case, and it's certainly relevant in a death penalty case. And then the prosecution, which was carrying water for the CIA, you know, was basically like doling out little dribs and drabs of summaries and et cetera, not refusing to give the defense lawyers, all of whom have top secret security clearance, the information that they were seeking. And let me just say one thing about the CIA. Um, the, the CIA owns the information about itself. You know, that's like one of the elements of the U.S. system. The CIA owns information about itself. So these defendants, because they were in CIA custody for years and know stuff about the CIA, the CIA laid claim to their memories. 
you know, so they were not, they were never allowed to speak to anybody who didn't have top secret uh, security clearance. The, the, the military commission courtroom is set up so that members of the public, which is comprised of journalists, uh, representatives of non-governmental organizations, and 9-11 victim family members would be sitting in a glass booth at the end, and the audio track is on a 40-second delay so that if anybody blurts out something that the CIA regards as secret, you know, the the, the um, audio could be uh, killed. But so for eight years, the, the defense lawyers were fighting and fighting and fighting for information, and the prosecution, the, the essential line of the prosecution was, you know, it doesn't matter what happened to these guys, um, you know, after uh, they were taken into U.S. custody because they are responsible for the killing of 2,797 Americans on 9-11. So the prosecution was, you know, sort of making this argument that the only thing that matters is the crime that they're charged for, which isn't actually how the law works and certainly not capital law. You know, but then one thing that occurred in 2017, which was really a break in the case, was when uh, the defense teams finally got uh, memos that they had been seeking for, you know, five years from the FBI. And just to put the FBI's role into all this, like the kind of the, the general image of the FBI is that while the CIA was busy kidnapping and torturing people, the FBI was operating above board. It was keeping its hands clean. It wasn't involved in um, the torture program, FBI, CIA, separate things. Well, what had happened it was that when the when the um, 14 detainees were transferred to Guantanamo in 2006, in January of 2007, as this was going back to the Bush administration, that they wanted to start getting um, clean statements from these people that could be used to pro- charge and prosecute them. The FBI sent so-called clean teams in, and and you know so going forward into the um, you know 2015, 16, 17, etc. So you see we're going going into a third administration, those FBI clean team statements were the crux of the prosecution of the prosecution's case in the 9-11 case. And in December of 2017, the defense teams pri- finally got these two FBI memos that, that um, revealed what the clean team process was. And what it revealed was that the FBI was basically run by the CIA, like the CIA controlled uh, the clean teams. So that, you know, when you're dealing then with issues pertaining to the rule of law and due process, the defense teams like latched onto that, you know, information. And really since um, 2017 until you know, 2022, the main thing shifted from a defense fight for information to a defense fight to suppress government evidence that they would use, you know, essentially the FBI thing on the grounds that those um, statements were uh, what they call in, you know, legal uh, terms, fruit of the, of the poisonous tree, like that you can't separate anything that, that these individuals said to the FBI as after torture, because there is no after torture. And so that was really what the hearings were primarily about, you know, for, um, from 2000, really from 2019, uh, onward. And then what happened, you know, the sort of culminating moment, and this is why I think that the 9-11 case is so significant on a broader level, but also, I mean, this is a chapter of U.S. history that I hope, you know, sort of it, through my book trying to bring to, you know, greater light. In January of 2020, you know, finally the defense teams um, got the two individuals, their psychologists, 
and they, the CIA had contracted them to run the torture program, James Mitchell and Bruce Jessen. So Mitchell, they, they weren't CIA employees, they were contractors, but they were brought down to Guantanamo to testify in these suppression hearings. And so particularly Mit- Mitchell, getting Mitchell on the stand in January of 2020, and he's explaining the logic of the CIA torture program. Like, And he was unabashed, you know, like the goal was to basically break detainees' psyches through various forms of violent, coercive, degrading treatment in order to produce in them what he called the condition of learned helplessness on the theory that once people are so helpless and broken that then interrogators could just mine their brains for actionable intelligence. And so it's, you know, it's quite a a situation. So that was what happened. And then, of course, as you and the rest of the world knows, you know, in the following two months, the pandemic started, everything grounded to a halt. And when the, you know, sort of things picked up again in 2021, uh, in the fall, they kind of resumed the um, going back to the hearings, you know, suppression hearings, still trying to make the case that there's no after torture and the FBI statements must be excluded. But what happened, a different out a different case, a different situation transformed the government's position. And what that was, was one of the other CIA um, detainees, his name is Majid Khan. He was, you know, uh, um, I mean, his role in, or his alleged role, well, the role he confessed to was that he was a money man. He had transferred money from Al-Qaeda to be used for um, some Al-Qaeda bombings in Indonesia. But once he was captured, I mean, he was willingly, conf- you know, sort of willing to attest to his um, guilt and culpability. And so back in 2012, um, this is during the Obama years, he agreed to plead guilty. And for, you know, a kind of an arrangement on his sentence, he agreed to provide testimony against Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and others. And so in um, 2021, they had his sentencing hearing. And so when there's a Majid Khan sentencing hearing, so even when there's a plea bargain, there's kind of a Potemkin-like scenario that happens, like that a military jury or panel is brought in. They don't know what the terms of the plea bargain are. And they're basically, the prosecution and the defense can, you know, make the case, um, you know, this person should be convicted for 50 years. This person should be given a very light sentence because of mitigating circumstances, whatever it might be, you know. And then what the outcome of that is whichever sentence is lower, the, the plea bargained agreement or whatever the um, the panel comes up with, that would be the, the sentence. That's how the military commissions work. So in um, Majid Khan's sentencing hearing, for the first time, someone who had been in CIA custody was allowed to, to testify uh, publicly. And so he basically acknowledged, you know, the errors he had made. He apologized for, you know, the role he had played in the harming and death of people. But then he proceeded proceeded to explain in great detail what had happened to him in CIA custody, including the fact that even as the more willing he was to cooperate, it didn't have any effect on the people who were torturing him in the black sites. He was raped repeatedly. He was, you know, abused in, in, you know, sort of unspeakable ways, but he actually spoke those ways. And what happened 
which was, I think, a really incredible thing, was that the seven of the eight members of the military panel, when they went in to deliberate, um, they basically, seven of them wrote a statement, or one of them wrote a statement and seven of them signed it, basically saying that the U.S. government should be ashamed of itself for what it did to Majid Khan and urging um, the government to be lenient on Majid Khan. And so, you know, Essentially, Majid Khan, uh, you know, that was a very profound thing to have seven officers who really didn't know anything about the CIA torture program until they heard Majid Khan testifying about it. And just, you know, having these officers, you know, f- have that kind of a reaction was such that it persuaded, at least according to Carol Rosenberg, who is the preeminent journalist covering Guantanamo, it was that outcome that persuaded the 9-11 prosecutors that it would be highly unlikely that they were going to get what they had been striving for in across four administrations, guilty verdicts, death sentences, and executions. And so in March of 2022, they inaugurated plea bargain negotiations. And so that's where the 9-11 case is now, which means that death is off the table. And what they're negotiating is over what are going to be the term, like how long will all of them be imprisoned and what are the conditions of their confinement. So it really was in some ways Majid Khan's, um, you know, ability to, you know, have this kind of very powerful day played a significant role in sort of, you know, providing some, you know, back, uh, like backseat accountability for um, the U.S. government. That's a very interesting place for it to currently be at. Um, and takes me to uh, sort of another final question. Um, this book and your discussion of it today um, started off with some kind of key lawyers, right, who mm-hmm. rallied around this and eventually sort of got enough of the word out through some of these key cases that, as you said, dozens and then hundreds of lawyers um, volunteered themselves for this fight in the courts. Um, what are some of the ones... What, what are they doing now? Um, well, you know, the 9-11 lawyers, most of them are still on the job. You know, uh, two have left the case. But, you know, these are <laughs> lawyers who have been at it. So, but, you know, most of the people who, you know, there's only 34 people left at Guantanamo. Um, 20 of them are cleared for release, but have yet to be uh, released. There's a couple of so-called forever prisoners, um, you know, that will never be charged or Release. So anybody who's representing those people, including the ones that are still on trial, are remain active. But I think a lot of them, you know, it's sort of like their roles are over. You know, they're they, they demobilized from this war in court. But one one thing I can say that the the ramifications, you know, although they're unsatisfying, we haven't really come to terms with this, is that this whole you know, two decades phenomenon of, you know, battles over law has actually transformed to some extent uh, law school curricula. It has, you know, there's, you know, many law schools that never had any kind of, you know, presence around national security law or military law or human rights or humanitarian law. We're seeing a lot of, um, that's one of the perhaps, you know, um, unanticipated benefits of all this is that it's, you know, elevated and and expanded um, the the bodies of law that people who want to call themselves lawyers need to to know about. I think that this will be, you know, I, I, you know, in terms of what most of them are doing, I think a lot of them have gone back to their own practices and stuff, but it is, you know, something that 
will, you know, people will, you know, this is this defined their uh, existence for years or even a decade. And I'm sure that at least in their teaching and other things that that will, you know, it becomes um, an issue. Uh, and I think that, you know, like, for example, the Center for Constitutional Rights has remained on the forefront of fighting, you know, not only issues emanating out of the war on terror, but other uh, kinds of issues. But I do think um, it's, you know, this is the one thing I really hope that my book, because I mean, I tell, you know, I tell uh, these are complicated legal issues, but I tell them um, in ways that kind of, you know, sort of humanize and, and, and uh, you know, give color to the various actors and the dramas, et cetera, that are going on, that people will, um, you know, appreciate, even if it was, you know, a, a kind of cir- circumscribed period of time for lawyers to be engaged in the war in court, that it was that the, the, the sum is greater than its parts, you know, the impact of this kind of mobilization really gout, you know, around the principle of defending the rule of law and demanding due process rights is something, you know, it's one chapter where the larger chapter of U.S. history, which is still not over, you know, is very dark. This is one glimmer of um, light. That's a very lovely place to have a glimmer of light to end on. Um, So that leaves only my final question, which is, Um, Obviously, this book has been a long process to write, Um, as you said, 14 trips to Guantanamo, uh, for one, and something that is very much a part of your research and work for even longer than the book itself. Um, So it seems kind of both odd and also kind of exciting for me to ask, is there anything you might be working on or look to work on next? You can give us a sneak preview of yeah. One thing um, I would just, um, I would say like whenever, like I'll keep on going to Guantanamo, um, you know, so for example, whenever there is a plea bargain in the 9-11 case, if that comes to pass, I will be there for the sentencing hearing to report on that just because that's going to be fascinating. But when I got the, the hard copy of my book last summer in August, if, you know, the press had sent me it and I sat down and I read it from cover to cover. I mean, obviously I've been working on this book for years, um, but like reading it from cover to cover, by the time I got to the end, it took me two days. I was like, boy, I am tired. <laughs> like that was a lot of work. And so my immediate thought was like, oh, I never want to write another book again. But then the following month, I had a, um, a kind of epiphany. And I have to just like put this in context because um, just to say what my next book project is. Uh, so I grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And when I was a child, like in the 19, late 1960s and you know, early 1970s, for reasons that I could explain, but they don't necessarily weren't one. Henry Kissinger was my childhood role model. And then when I turned 13, I realized like sort of who Henry Kissinger was. Like I had, you know, sort of looked at, you know, at the time when I was a kid, he was touted as somebody who was like, you know, the smart guy behind the, the brains, behind the out operations of the Nixon administration. And my family were Republicans. Um, but then I had sort of a change of pace. So I'm from Harrisburg. I really had this thing for Henry Kissinger, which then turned into a real aversion. You know, I'm sort of a bit obsessed with Kissinger. So in September, this, just a couple months ago, um, I had this re- revelation that I should write a kind of uh, like a historical, like a historically based book, but with a kind of novelized features about something called the Harrisburg Seven Trial. And the title of my future book is going to be called Kidnapping Kissinger. And the case involved Iqbal Ahmed and two anti-Vietnam War um, priests, the Berrigan brothers, Daniel and Philip Berrigan, and a couple of nuns. 
And they had been, you know, sort of joking around, like, how are we going to end the Vietnam War? Let's kidnap Kissinger, um, you know, and ransom him for an end. And so the Nixon administration decided to actually take that joke seriously. And then they selected Harrisburg because it was so predictably conservative. They were convinced that they could get guilty verdicts. So, you know, there's that thing. And then for that trial, and since I'm a sociologist, a kind of anti-war sociologist supported the defense teams. And in that trial, that is when jury selection was invented, was invented for the Harrisburg 7 trial. So my future book is going to be called Kidnapping Kissinger, and it'll be about the Harrisburg 7 trial and the invention of jury selection. Okay. Well, now I think we all want to read that one. So best of luck um, writing that book. Um, And while you're working on it, uh, listeners can read the book we've been mainly discussing, which again is titled The War in Court, Inside the Long Fight Against Torture, published by the University of California Press in 2022. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.